wonderful to see everyone here on Seafair Weekend. Is this microphone working okay? Yeah. When I, when I was a kid, Seafair and the hydroplane races, other than Husky football, was the only sport in town. And now people hardly think about it. When we were little kids on Seafair Week, we would make hydroplanes out of wood. I bet Bob did this. And you'd decide whether you were the Miss Bardall, the Miss Thriftway, or the Budweiser. You'd paint your little wooden hydroplane. You'd tie it on a string to the back of your bicycle. And then you'd steal one of your mom's playing cards, which you kind of get in trouble for, and, and a clothespin. And you clothespin the playing card in the wheels of your bike so that when the bike wheels turn, it goes rum, 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 and sounds like an engine, and you drag the boat along the ground. And that was our high-tech celebration of the hydroplane races back then. I did exactly that. <laughs> yeah, right? And, then, and you'd race these other kids on bikes and go around in circles and crash, all in the name of Budweiser or whoever else. So it's a big weekend around here and Seafair, and it's a pleasure to have some time with you today to talk about a passage of Scripture that I think is very, very important. It's very instructive for the church, and it's somewhat subversive and destructive to the way that we naturally tend to order our lives in the church. It, it, this, is a, this is a perspective wrencher that, that grabs us and takes out of our self-focus and causes us to realize that we're something bigger, we're part of something bigger than we could possibly imagine. And, and it calls us to that bigger and higher and wider perspective on life. So I'm going to be reading today Isaiah 49, 6 through 8. It's a short passage. Here's the deal. Israel, the nation, has been in captivity to the land of Babylon. They've been there a long time. They're living along these canals that are all infected with typhus and everything. So this is a horrible place to be living in exile. They've lost all their hope. And the one thing they can pray to God is, God, would you just kind of be the mighty smiter and smite these stupid Babylonians and set us free and make us rich and prosperous and the, the, the light to the world again and make us comfortable and restore to us the dignity and power and wealth and everything that we once possessed. And these people pray this ever so hard, and God raises up prophets in Babylon to speak to the, the people of Israel, the Hebrew children, the Jews, and when he speaks to them, they're looking for comfort and, oh, I know how you feel, let's get, let's get those lousy Babylonians, right? And the message always comes back from the prophet, particularly in Isaiah here, during this exile of, of Israel, that they can't go back to the way it was because the way it was was the way God didn't want it to be, and that's why he put them in captivity in Babylon. I'm not going to let you guys out of Babylon until you realize I have a greater and higher purpose for you. Then we'll move on with things. So we get that greater and higher purpose that exists for the people of Israel. And of course, there's a parallel in Scripture. The Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church are identical parallels of each other, right? So the Old Testament Hebrew religion, Jesus comes, turns that into the church, and now the church is the, is the new Israel of God in the world for all time and eternity. And here's an interesting thing. When God speaks to that Israel, that land, 
that somehow feels like they're special, that they should be king of the world, they should have a corner on everything, they often get a surprise. And you're going to hear the surprise today, and we're going to talk about what comes out of the mouth of Isaiah in the midst of this desire for vengeance and freedom. And it's a bit of a doozy, okay? So Isaiah 49, 6 to 8. It is too small of a thing. Start that over again. It is too small of a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob. Shocking first sentence. These people want to be delivered. They want, to, they want an iron-fisted delivery from captivity in Babylon. And God looks at them and through the prophet says, it's too small a thing that you would just be restored to be the tribes of Jacob. In other words, God's saying, I got more from you. It's global. I'm not just here to help you bring back those of Israel I've kept. I'll also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will make you, I'm going to read that again. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the very ends of the earth. To him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant rulers. rulers. Now here's, here's the destiny that awaits Israel if they will accept their calling. Kings will see you and they'll stand up. Princes will see you and they will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I'll answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and restore the land and reassign its desolate inheritance. This passage, friends, expresses the highest calling for the church of Jesus Christ and for each of us as individual believers. Not to somehow have it cushy and cozy, but rather to bear the honor and the dignity of being a light to the nations, of being a servant people to the world for the sake of the world's salvation. God's at work in Jesus Christ making a ruined creation new again. And it's not about just one special group of people. God's work to renew his creation is for every single human being. We tend to have the feeling in church gatherings, oops, I'm saved, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't run with the girls that do, and we set up our little moral code, and we gather in our little Christian clusters, and we wait for Jesus to come again or something right? And that's what the Hebrew children are there gathered together in the little huddle complaining about the state of Babylon and just trying to huddle in, hunker down, and wait for God to come and rescue them. And God's rescue of his people is not a rescue from the world, but a rescue from the purposelessness of sitting around in holy huddles while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. This is a really startling responsibility, joy, dignity, and calling that's been laid on us as the church to be a light to the nations of the world. God's at work in Jesus. 
we can't participate in the grand recreation and restoration of the world by only gathering in the local church. Now, I don't want to downplay what we do when we gather here. It's really important for Christians to gather together to glorify God. He deserves our corporate worship together. The world needs to see people taking time and prioritizing, organizing their lives around Jesus Christ as the center of life. So this thing we do as church is a critical part of the rhythm that we live in. The problem is, for most Christians, the going to church is the beginning and end of everything we do with our Christian life. Way too many of us. And that leaves the world deprived of our presence, of the words we have about love and grace. All the faith, hope, and love story has been entrusted to us. But if we keep it in here, we've missed our calling. And we find ourselves in sort of a postmodern Babylonian exile, clustered together as Christians, somehow waiting for all the evil and everything to pass, while God is waiting for us to get over our isolationism and engage the world with the gospel in words and in action. Every single Christian. I love this verse 6. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant and just restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. Isn't that fascinating? That's a good thing. It might be a sub-goal. Having fellowship, being together in community groups, fine, part of the deal. But that's too small a thing to be the whole package. It's not the whole enchilada. It might not even be the enchilada sauce. Being the church gathered is too small a vision and calling. We're called instead to the big thing, to the renewal of the whole thing in creation. That means that we need to begin to take this understanding of what it means to center our life in Jesus personally. And we need to take that Jesus-centered life and kick it into action in the places where we live and work. We need to engage our neighbors around us. You know, I've, I've historically not been a good neighbor. If you have ever worked in sports and sports broadcasting or been a pastor, it can be kind of consuming. And people used to occasionally walk up in our neighborhood and say to Nancy, are, are, are you and that guy still married? Because you know, nobody in my neighborhood had seen me for 20 years. Okay? That, that's not good neighboring. And Nancy is really good at this, and we've got these new neighbors, and we're just doing this circle now of hanging out and meeting our new neighbors and having dinner together and, uh, and getting to know them. But this is, this is something that is really big. When we're at work, what does the fact that Jesus Christ is alive in us mean in our particular vocation? Have we taken the time if we're a teacher? What if we sell a commodity or a product? Boats, cars, houses. How do, we, how do we understand what it means to be in Jesus and reflect Jesus' way and Jesus' values in how we do business, in how we conduct our relationships with the people we work with? The whole shlemiel. This is what the world is dying to see, and this is what Jesus Christ died for us to wake up to and do in the power of his resurrection. 
verses six and a half and seven says, I'll also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. There's nobody in this world alive now, ever lived in the past, ever will come to live in the future, for whom Jesus Christ did not die on the cross. And rise again. No one. No one's beyond redemption. This is what the Lord said, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nations, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who's faithful. Now, we're called to be this light to the nations. And I was reading a very, very fairly sophisticated commentary on this prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, and about the uniqueness of this period of time. And this commentator stopped in the middle of this passage and switched from looking at thousands of years ago in Babylon and came to the contemporary world and made this observation. I want to read it to you. When a survival mentality for a local congregation, a defensive posture by Christians in the public square, a paranoid emphasis on preserving the purity of the body of Christ, or a success syndrome built on growth in numbers and dollars dominate the work of a prophet, God will say, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. Prophets have something bigger to do. No task can be larger, more challenging, and more meaningful than God's goal for his servant. I also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a really powerful quote. A survival mentality, a defensive posture in the public square, a paranoid emphasis on the church somehow being perfect. And be careful we don't get some of those people in here so that we're not pure and perfect anymore. Boy, oh boy. If you want to make the church pure and perfect, this would be an empty room, wouldn't it? I sure the fat wouldn't be up here wasting your time. I'd be zapped. God yearns to equip you and me and every one of us to live in the world in a way that ordinary folks who have been ignored by other people that love the Lord and who have ignored the Lord themselves can be introduced. The kings, the power brokers, will rise up and surrender their thrones to him, the Lord of lords and king of kings. You know, you see this, kings stand up. Usually kings are seated with their scepter and people come to them and bow down. And when a king stands up or a queen stands up, that is a position of offering oneself on equal footing. And basically what this says is the, 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 the kings of this world, the, the movers and shakers will stand up and pay attention to us who follow Jesus. If we learn to live a Jesus-centered life in all the aspects of our life in the world. That's a lifelong challenge, by the way. It really, it really, and it's a real marker for Christian growth. We talk about discipleship and growth. Well, here's a great sign of discipleship. I can learn to love and work with the people in my office that I work with. And I can make them feel valuable. I can take care of my clients. That's a, that's a huge, huge step of discipleship. 
And it's not memory verses, it's not another study, it's not another meeting. It's actually the Christian life lived out in the marketplace. I think that's where the fruit of the Spirit begins to dangle off of our lives, when we risk to live in the world in that way. And pray for the leaders of this city. Pray for the members of Congress. Care about those things. And secondarily, participate in the systems and structures in the world that promote peace, love, understanding, and the common good. Because that's what the reign of Jesus Christ is all about. I'm not taking a political stance on anything. I'm just saying be engaged in the world in which you live politically. If you're a Republican, Democrat, whatever you are, nonpartisan, engage in the systems. Don't back away from public life. But also learn to engage in public life in Jesus' way which, by the way, I'm not seeing a lot of in public life right now. That would really be cool to see some people demonstrate Jesus in our public dialogue in our culture right now and kind of cool things down. He also says in the scripture that princes will bow down to Jesus as you and I manifest his love, grace, and justice. When I think of this word, the princes, who are the princes of our cultures? These are, the, these are kind of the, the movers and shakers and stars the business people like the Balmers and the, and the Bezos. It's the, it's the famous actors and musicians and people like this. And, and what this is saying, that Jesus is winsome even to the people who are the superstars. He's the star that reigns over the top of all the stars. He's the light that illuminates all other lights. This is the nature and character of Jesus. And the princes of this world rise up to him. I can't tell you how many different times I've seen people in the, in the rock and roll crazy 21st century world, um, come around and acknowledge that there's something to this Jesus and something to this faith story. And I, I've seen it so many different times in different places, and I don't want to tell a whole bunch of stories, partly because my stories are from my generation, and I'll be talking about times when some of you here weren't alive. And I realize what that does to your sleep response and your desire for slumber, so I'm not going to do that to you. But these highly placed and powerful people that already know Jesus in some places are quiet about it. They don't bring it out. So one of the things I work with an organization called Centered, our whole mission is uh, raising up the next generation of Jesus-centered leaders. And one of the things that we'll do is go into downtown and we'll find a business person. We'll find an elected official who has a faith in Jesus Christ, but they've been quiet about it. They've been reserved. They haven't had the encouragement to live that out in public. They're worried about being, uh, sounding like a bully or being a religious zealot. And so one of the things we can do as Christians is we discover friends in our neighborhood, people we work with, or someone that knows someone that's an influence that's a Christian. We can come alongside people and embolden them to live their faith more and more publicly. I love the fact that I see Melinda Gates doing different things. And as you talk about the Bill and Melinda Gates thing and the stuff that particularly that she does philanthropically, she all oftentimes falls back and talks about the underpinnings of her being raised as a Roman Catholic and what that did to shape her worldview and how she still hangs on to that. Well, that's really great that people in such a public place with such an opportunity are willing to acknowledge that. You and I have that same faith to acknowledge 
and build up around us. There are so many places we can do this. I oftentimes hear Christians, particularly on the radio and in media, criticizing our public schools and saying how terrible they are. Well, a recent study by the Pew Charitable Trust showed that almost 50% of all the public school teachers in the United States of America have a faith in Jesus Christ, and many of them, a high percentage, see their work teaching in public schools as their mission from Jesus Christ in the world. And they're out there in these overcrowded classrooms working through the weekends grading papers and struggling to be awake enough to go to church on Sunday morning, and then all the Christians get together and talk about how bad the schools are and how rotten the teachers are and that they just fill kids' brains with rotting filth. This is a, this is a really crazy way to live. These people need to be acknowledged for their calling. We need to come alongside these people and say, go get them, tiger. Live your faith, hope, and love in a, in a belligerent, even if you can't articulate it, a belligerent lifestyle sort of a way. And it sticks out when people do. And if you take a hard look at our American culture, you see that the church changes at different times with its influence on culture. And right now in North America, the Christian image in the church is kind of down. Have you noticed that? All right, we're not really getting a lot of, hey, you're really cool guys. You know, it's, it's more like, I used to think Christians were booger-eating nerds. Now, they're, now people think we're fire-breathing maniacs with totally closed minds. It's, 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 and I think, I think, though, that these cycles come and go. But the thing that validates Jesus in the world is not these impressions. It's not the Christian media. It's how those of us who are Christian understand that it's too small a thing just to be saved and comfy and have some Christian friends. If that's your life... I love you, and Jesus loves you beyond your wildest imagination. But that is way too small. It's way too small. Teensy-weensy, okay? Our calling is to allow Jesus to be seen through us, through our relationships, through our gatherings that we have together. And when our prayers and our lifestyle shift from the focus on us and church-focused to we're just out here to the whole world, things begin to change. And in Babylon, when the people of Israel began to do that, things changed for them. And the next Babylonian king became more friendly. A miracle of miracles. He let the Israeli people, the Hebrew children, the Jews, go back to their homeland, and they got a chance to go at it again. I think it's a beautiful story. God's hand is there to help us if we're willing to represent him in this way. So what I want to say as I wrap up here is is very simply, very, very simply, that our call is to be a light to all the nations. That if we're only thinking about our life in Jesus, our little group's life in Jesus together, we're just thinking too small. Sanctuary Christian Reformed Church has 60 to 100 people a week in the seats, but we got 17,000 people in this neighborhood. So it looks to me like we're 60 or 70 people 
into a 17,000 per person process here of making our church Greenwood and Greenwood our church. Making Microsoft. Okay? And I, 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 you know, I don't think this is so radical if we just put our mind on that, that God really wants to use us and can use us in our everyday life. And that we should be thinking that way naturally. We should be looking for people to invite over to dinner. Looking for people to invite to come church and sit with us. And we should be listening to what they say about what they hear and experience here. And if people think we have our head buried in the ground a little bit or we need to get woken up to some of the realities of the world, then give people an opportunity to speak that to us. Listen to feedback and respond to it. But I think we have a lovely opportunity here, people, to be a light to the nations. And don't settle for the small thing. Go for the big enchilada. And trust God to grow you and give you capacity as you do that. It seems beyond us, but it's amazing when we take risks, what God does to jump in the middle of that and join us. And God has taken a risk because Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And while I'm gone, I'm going to send you this empowerment, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and you will do greater things in this world even than I have done. So Jesus is waiting to make himself great in and through you. Think about that as you come to this table this morning. Where are you living too small and where are opportunities for you to live bigger as a light to the nations? Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we come in gratitude. You made us in love. You've shaped us in love. And you guide us in your love. And you strengthen us in your love when we live your love. Lord, we're very conscious when we think about your love and perfection of the fact that we're pretty incomplete. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins even in a moment of silence here, hear our prayers of confession as we ask for your forgiveness. Lord, your word tells us if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us and set us on a new track. So we accept that here and now. Lord, we thank you that you've come to us You've shown us the way. You have been the way for us. We thank you that you died on the cross for us and that you rose again and that we are in you and you are in us. As we live that mystery, Lord, we indeed can be a light to the nations. Today, as we receive this bread and this cup, Fire that light within us. Fire within us the desire for you to be seen in this world, through our lives, through our fellowship, through our contributions. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.